All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. He is risen. You can open your Bibles to Colossians 2. And while you do, I will pray that God blesses this message. Father, we thank you so much for what we were able to celebrate today. Had Christ stayed in the grave, then our faith would be in vain and we'd be the most pitied, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. And so we thank you so much for uh, not just his resurrection, but what it means for us that his victory over sin and death is really our victory over sin and death as it's imputed to those who have put their faith in him. And I pray as we discuss some of these truths uh, during this sermon that you would help me to speak clearly uh, give me the message to deliver to your people. I believe I studied this week and, and prayed many times that, that each person here would be hearing exactly what you desire for them because you knew who would be here and what's going on in their lives. But we recognize that without open hearts, then your word doesn't penetrate, Lord. And so we pray for that work that only your Holy Spirit can accomplish to provide that fertile soil that will receive the gospel and our hearts go out toward anyone who would be joining us who is either unsaved or deceived about their salvation hasn't repented and put their faith in Christ, that that work could be wrought in their hearts and that you would bring them to, to salvation, Lord. And, and so we pray for any unbelievers who uh, we are privileged enough to have had join us. And we pray for the believers who are here. I don't, we should never tire of hearing the gospel and of what Christ has done for us. And by your grace, we might even grow in our appreciation uh, for it uh, day by day and month by month. And hopefully every res- Resurrection Sunday, just be more mindful of what Jesus has done for us, and so, and this wonderful truth that he is raised from the grave, and that it looks forward to our resurrections, and so we thank you for that, Lord. Pray that you would help us to be focused on the scriptures and open to what you would say to them, say to us through them, Uh, and I pray that we would remove any distractions from our minds and just be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for this time. ask that you'd be pleased with it and glorified through it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The title this morning's sermon is Jesus is Willing. Jesus is Willing. So over the last few sermons, uh, we talked about baptism, and then in last Sunday's sermon, we talked somewhat about circumcision, and this morning, we are obviously focused on Christ's resurrection. And so the last few weeks, we've had baptism, circumcision, and resurrection, and very wonderfully, all three of those are woven into these verses that we're going to look at here in Colossians 2. So go ahead and read with me verses 11 through 14, and look for those three elements, baptism, circumcision, and resurrection, starting at verse 11. Paul says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so in these few verses, we get to see some of the wonderful things that I would say Jesus is willing to do for us. You get to see in these verses some of the wonderful things that Jesus is willing to do for us, and we're going to talk about them for the rest of this sermon. First, reread verse, reread verse 11 with me. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision that was made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
This verse might sound familiar. We talked about it uh, during last Sunday's sermon. Circumcision is a sign of God's covenant with the nation of Israel. Even though it was physical, we discussed that it had a true and greater spiritual reality. So even though circumcision was physical, it looked forward to or prefigured or foreshadowed a true and greater spiritual reality, which is circumcision of the of the heart exactly and that's what paul's talking about you see in this verse when he says a circumcision made without hands he means this is not a physical circumcision but it's a spiritual circumcision even when he talks about putting off the flesh he's not talking about anything physical there this isn't physical flesh that's put off this is talking about the spiritual flesh that's put off and and what is what is that spiritual flesh it's that flesh that tempts us to sin to live in rebellion to god and so we're told right here that through christ through a relationship with him we can have that spiritual flesh cut off or circumcised from us so that we can have victory over temptation and sin this is the first thing jesus is willing to do for us lesson one jesus is willing to give us victory over sin jesus is willing to give us victory over sin he is willing to put off our spiritual flesh make sure you understand that's what's in view there any physical flesh put off in the old testament only looked forward to this true and greater circumcision that god desired for his people what i want you to be thinking about today is when jesus died and then rose from the grave he had a complete and total victory over sin and by that i mean he not only died for our sins and that he provided for our salvation he also died unto sin in providing for our sanctification let me say that one more time he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven for them and that the punishment for them would be paid but he also died unto sin for our sanctification and that we can grow in our holiness or in our image and likeness with christ listen to the way paul explains this in romans 2 or here's here's kind of the truth i want you to understand christ did what the law couldn't do in our lives let me say that one more time christ did what the law could never do no matter how many times you might ever preach the the law or the ten commandments whether to your children or someone else all that does is convince people that they are what sinners that's it it doesn't save them it doesn't it doesn't help them grow spiritually it definitely doesn't uh bring them to life spiritually it, it doesn't help them become more like christ all it does is show them their need for christ listen to the way paul explains this romans 2 29 a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and when he says by the letter he means not by the letter of the of the law it's only something that the holy spirit can can bring about in in our hearts so we experience victory over sin i mean this is a, a profound truth for some people to understand especially those people who have been wrestling against sin in their own effort for many years that is a life of frustration essentially to try to to try to white knuckle it and strain in your best effort to have victory over temptation is really to experience terrible frustration and so when it says it's not something that can be committed um, by the letter of the law only by the spirit is only through a relationship with christ that we can really have lasting victory over sin that has perhaps plagued us throughout our lives now it's not to say that we ever become sinless or stop sinning as we read in first john it would be a lie to ever say that we no longer have any sin but it is to say that we no longer need to be enslaved to its desires so sin has lost its power over us and so an unbeliever has no choice but to what sin but every time as believers we face temptation uh, we feel the, our flesh pulling us toward it 
uh, we are reminded through the pages of Scripture, these wonderful promises, that we can, through the work of the gospel in our hearts, resist this temptation right now. We do not have to give in to this temptation and sin as, as it has been broken to power as we yield to Christ and walk in the Spirit. Now look at verse 12, and as we do, I want you to notice the repetition of the phrase, with him. We're going to be seeing the substitution that uh, Christ, the substitute Christ was willing to be for us, and look for the repeated use of the phrase, with him. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So you can't miss this very strong language of substitution here where we're buried with him, we are raised with him, we are made alive together with him. And you can look at these verses and you can almost wonder who's doing this. You know, who is it? Who died? Who buried? Who's buried? Who, who's raised? I mean, is it Christ or, or me? And what's the answer? Yes, it's both because this happened spiritually with him. And this brings us to lesson two. Jesus is willing to be our substitute. Jesus is willing to be our substitute. In verse 11, look at the words, buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Like we talked about last week, the word baptized means immersed, and it's important to understand that in the New Testament, baptism has a physical and a spiritual reality. There is a duality to baptism in the New Testament where there's baptism with water, which is physical, but there's also the spiritual baptism or immersion in Christ that has already taken place. And so I say baptism, and you probably immediately think of water, but the spiritual reality has no water associated with it. There are what's called dry verses in Scripture. Those are verses that have nothing to do with water baptism, yet they're still discussing baptism. So when, when, we, when you hear baptism, you need to ask, are we talking about water baptism, the physical reality, or are we talking about the spiritual reality, which would be the spiritual immersion in Christ? Whenever we're talking about spiritual baptism, we're talking about a very close association with Christ, like these verses are describing, buried with him, or died with him, buried with him, raised with him. Listen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 2. All the Israelites were baptized into Moses. You kind of read that, and you say, well, what does that mean? That sounds odd, being baptized into Moses. But if you understand baptized means immersed, it's talking about the Israelites' very close association or identification with Moses when they were traveling through the Red Sea and then going with him through the wilderness. Now, spiritually, we have this immersion or this very close association with Christ. As believers, we have, we have deep uh, and intimate fellowship with him. And so because of that, his death is ours, his burial is ours, his resurrection will be ours in the future. It is spiritually our resurrection now, and it will be physically our resurrection in the future. Listen to the way Paul explains it in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And again, you hear this deep language of substitution. He died, it's as though we died. He's buried, it's as though we were buried. He's raised, it's as though we were raised. 
Now, after this spiritual immersion with Christ takes place, that spiritual immersion or spiritual baptism is to be followed by what? Water baptism or physical baptism. I don't know if you've ever considered this before. We're going to have baptisms after service. We had six of them after the first service. We'll have six more after the second service. And every time a baptism takes place, it is a play. Let me say that one more time. It is a play. There are actors. There are individuals who are acting out physically what has already taken place spiritually. They are, so the, the individual stands there, uh, unless they're terrified of water for some reason, they're still, right? Uh, they're to appear to be dead. And then they are lowered under the water, communicating their burial, and then they are raised back up. And it's not even the person scrambling to the surface themselves. They're raised because even that person who's raising them is playing God the Father, raising God the Son. I mean, we see that in uh, Romans 6, 3, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, has the same language in Colossians 2. So every single baptism that takes place is a physical demonstration or manifestation of what has already transpired spiritually in the believer's life. It is showing outwardly what has already occurred inwardly. Essentially, it's a person saying, this has happened to me inwardly, and I want you to believe that I'm a follower of Christ, and so I'm revealing it outwardly to you. Now, let me explain why all this is so significant. Earlier, I said that we have victory we, uh, over sin, the consequences of it, the, etern- the, the eternal punishment of it in hell. But even when we become believers and are able to resist temptation in the future, the reality is there are other sins we will still commit, and prior to becoming Christians, there were sins that we had already committed. So as dramatic as this, as this victory over sin sounds, it's somewhat limited until you understand this truth. And let me, let me uh, demonstrate it by asking you a question. What is required of every person who has ever sinned? Or what is the punishment for sin? Or what is the wages of it? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. This is part of God's justice. Uh, we don't get to, maybe it seems severe. I say, that every, I say that the requirement or what is required from every person who has sinned is death. And you say, well, that sounds severe. Well, I don't, it doesn't matter if it sounds severe to you. You're not in charge. You don't get to determine what's right and wrong. You don't get to look at God's word and, and uh, you have the liberty to look at it and disagree if you want, but you don't have the liberty to look at it and change what's truth. And just because you disagree, it doesn't stop being truth. And so perhaps you say, well, that seems very cruel. I mean, it doesn't, I don't really care if, if, it's, if it seems cruel to you. It's the truth of what God's word say. And, and my uh, desire would be that you embrace what scripture says and, and not hold to any, any lies or deception. And now, because what is required of every person um, for sinning is death, there must be an accompanying death for our sin. That is what God says is just. That is part of his justice. But the good news or the gospel is this. If Jesus is our substitute, if we have been baptized with him or we have been spiritually immersed in him, then his death can become our death. He dies for us. The death that is required for our sin has taken place. So if I use myself as an example, and I, I don't need to be a sin flasher and discuss some, uh, you know, any amount of the sin that I've uh, engaged in prior to becoming a Christian or even sins I'm ashamed of after becoming a Christian, but I can't say this. I know that what is required because of my sin is death, but because Christ hung on that cross 
in my place as my substitute, the debt that was required has already been paid in my place. I mean, what a beautiful uh, truth or reality that, that should stir us up to, to thankfulness and, and I would say worship every day of our lives. Now, let me help you appreciate this by asking you to imagine something. Imagine the person, or, or perhaps people, that you love the most. These are the types of people that they suffer, and it, the suffering is almost worse for, worse for you as you're forced to watch them suffer. These are the people that, while they're grieving, you would, you would desire or feel blessed to be able to take their grief or suffering on yourself and bear it. And so if you're a parent, this is how you feel as you look at your children's suffering. If you're uh, married, this is how you look at your husband or wife when they suffer. If you're a child, this is possibly how you look at your siblings or your parents when they suffer. Now, let's say you know that this person that you love more than you can put into words is going to be punished for their sin. And imagine this courtroom where God sits as the judge, and the verdict is read. God announces this pronouncement against this person that you love and says that he or she is going to have to suffer terribly for what they've done. And so because of your great love for this person, you jump up and you loudly exclaim, I will take their place. I will suffer for their sins in other words, I will be their substitute. Whatever, whatever they owe, let me, let me pay it. Let me, let me die or be in their place. Receive the punishment that their sins deserve. What is this judge going to say to you? He's going to say, well, who's your substitute? How could you take the punishment for someone else's sins when you're due punishment for your own sins? How could you stand in someone else's place when you need someone standing in your place? How would you pay for someone else's sins when you need someone to pay for your own? The only way that someone can serve as a substitute for someone else is if that person needs no substitute. The only way that someone could take the punishment that someone else deserves is if they're not due any punishment themselves. You would have to be sinless. You would have to be perfect. Listen to what Peter said about Christ when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.24, he says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let me read this one more time. Peter's explaining. They're at, they're at, Pentecost has taken place. Peter can't have all these individuals thinking that those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit are drunk, and he begins to explain that what they're actually witnessing is evidence of Christ's resurrection. And he says Christ has been resurrected because the grave cannot hold him. It was not possible for him to remain dead. And why would Jesus, why would this be the case for Christ? We've already talked about it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but if Jesus never sinned, then he can't remain dead. Now, if we sin, we die, and we remain dead. There's a couple individuals, I was reading something the other day about a woman who was convinced that this person, and I, for all I know, this, this woman could very well be a Christian. I mean, perhaps it was her faith and her faith in God raising people from the dead 
that allowed or convinced her that this person she loved was going to be raised. And it, it, it sounded uh, heartbreaking to read. I mean, perhaps they were at the funeral, and she's looking at the coffin even, imagining that this person will, will be raised from it. But that's, that is not the case for us, because the fact is, when, when we have sinned, we die, that is the just punishment for us to remain dead, separate from Christ, that is, separate from receiving the resurrection that he offers through repentance of sin and faith in him. But that's not the category that Jesus is in. He did not deserve to die. This is why we celebrate his resurrection from the grave today. This is why we sing, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Now consider this. When we talk about justice, we use that phrase very loosely. You could look at a a judge and say that he's just. He's never been perfectly just. We do the very best we can as parents to administer just discipline to our children. For example, I think it's in Hebrews 12, and it says, I really appreciate it. It says our earthly fathers are doing what? (laughs) The best we can. That's what it says. And I want to show that to my kids and say, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best that I can here. I'm only guessing that this required two spankings. (laughs) You know, maybe it desired, maybe it required four, or maybe it required one, or maybe it required three that were harder or not as hard. I mean, I don't know. I'm just trying, kind of, you know, trying to figure this out as I go. And I'll tell my, sometimes I go back and I apologize for spanking them too hard. And then there's other times my kids look at me. I'm not going to mention whether Noah is notorious for this or not, but he looks up to me and he says, that didn't hurt. And then I got to apologize that I didn't spank him harder. And then I walk away, and Katie kind of looks at me, and, and she's like, well, you're not helping me a whole lot around here with the kids, you know? So, and the point is, we're, we're trying to figure out, <laughs> we're trying to figure out here what's just, and, and we're guessing, basically, and, and even, even in a courtroom, and a judge says, you're going to prison for this many years, or, or, or you're going to be fine, or this much community service, he's doing, he's guessing, he's trying to be just. God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just. And do you know what that means? That means every single sin that has ever been committed must be punished. Let me say it one more time. Every single sin that has ever been committed must be punished. Should even one sin ever escape God's judgment, then God could be very, 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 very close to being perfectly just, but he would not be perfectly just. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before, but every single time you've sinned, there has been a record of it. Because God must be perfectly just, in Revelation 20, assuming that's literal, it seems like there are books that record the different sins that we have committed. For some of you, there might be lots of books recording those, those sins. And so they all need to be kept down, every one of them. And because of that, we owe God. We are in debt to him. But if Jesus is our substitute and he dies in our place, then he takes the punishment that our sins deserve, and then what happens with that debt? It's wiped clean. It is paid then. Look at this beautiful reality. I did not, I did not, um, this is not implied. You, I did not infer this from Scripture. I did, not, I did not put together some collection of verses to come up with this beautiful reality that I just shared with you. I shared it with you because it says it in verse 14. It says, by canceling the record 
of debt, that's our sin debt, that stood against us. And this brings us to lesson three. Jesus is willing to cancel our sin debt. Jesus is willing to cancel our sin debt. So I joked earlier, maybe some of us have lots of books with, with our sins in them. But this is the beautiful reality that it doesn't matter how many books are required to record all of the sins that we have ever committed. All of that debt can be canceled through Christ's sacrifice. But I want to get you to think about something. If, imagine that you owe someone money, but you never pay that debt. You owe someone money, you never pay that debt. We recognize that that would not be right, or that, or that would not be just, speaking of justice, to repay debts that we owe. So here's the question. How could a perfectly holy, perfectly just God cancel our debt? There's only one way he could do it and remain perfectly just. That debt would have to be paid. It's, it's surprising the number of people who will be infuriated when there's a verdict or a court case that they disagree with. Typically, they believe that someone was declared innocent when they thought the individual was guilty. Yet, those, many of those same people who are furious about a courtroom judge declaring people to be innocent or not, or not holding responsible for the things that they've done wrong, believe that God is going to do that on an unimaginable scale by allowing all of these people who have ever sinned to go to heaven. It's absurd. It truly is absurd. Should God allow sinful, wretched people to go to heaven, have their debt canceled without that debt being paid, God would, believe, God would be unspeakably merciful, and he would be equally unspeakably unjust. Now, if God wanted to be completely just, he could send all of us to hell. And again, if you, perhaps you think that's cruel or you think it's severe. Sometimes I wrestle with that, to be candid with you. Just because I pastor or preach God's word doesn't mean that I'm comfortable or there's no amount of tension for me regarding things that I read in Scripture. But, we're, it's, you know, the Bible isn't a buffet where we get to pick and choose what we like or agree with and dis disregard what we don't like. And so God could be completely just in casting all of us into hell for eternity to suffer for the sins that we have committed, and he would be unspeakably just, and he would also be, also be unspeakably unmerciful. Nobody would have been shown mercy for any of their sins. But the Bible says that God is just and he's merciful. And so our sins must be paid. And at the same time, God does want to be merciful to us. And, where, and where, there's only one intersection for those. There is only one place that God's justice and mercy meet. And where's that? That's at the cross. The cross allows God to be completely merciful because my sin is canceled my debt is my debt against him is forgiven but at the same time he's also just because the punishment has been paid now you perhaps sit here and you might be choosing through your rejection of christ to pay that yourself you reject the sacrifice that he has made for you he hung on that cross but maybe you think you're a good person or i, I don't know what goes through your mind well what will happen is god will still be just 
And he will, in a way, even still be merciful toward you because he gave you, he allowed you to be a free moral agent who rejected his son. And so it is an unimaginable thing the way that God can be merciful and just through the cross. And to help you appreciate how extensive Christ's sacrifice was and how merciful the Lord is, at the end of verse 13, notice it says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, if you're anything like me, sometimes I read God's Word, and it doesn't always read the way that I'd expect. And uh, in fact, sometimes there might be a word, and I wish there was another word there. And this is kind of one of those instances, because it says, having been forgiven for all of our trespasses. And I say, why doesn't it say sins? I want to be forgiven for all of my sins, is what I initially thought. Well, let me explain this. There are lots of different types of sins. Did you know that you could sin accidentally? Or did you know that you could sin unintentionally? God has set this perfectly holy or or just or righteous standard. And when we don't keep it, even when we don't keep it unknowingly, we are still sinning. It doesn't stop being a sin just because we didn't know it was sinful. Perhaps you didn't know that God's word says drunkenness is a sin. Or you didn't know that it was a sin to covet. Or you didn't know that it was a sin to take God's name in vain. Or, Or maybe you didn't know it was a sin to worry that the Bible commands us not to worry. Now, all sins are not the same, but when we do these things, when we covet, get drunk, worry, uh, take God's name in vain, we're sinning whether we recognize those things were sinful. It's like the person speeding. When they didn't know the speed limit, they were still speeding. But here's the thing. I'm sharing all that to say this. They weren't trespassing. Because trespassing is, is where you know where the property line is. You know, you're not supposed to trespass. You're not supposed to go there. And, to commit it, and God has drawn plenty of property lines for us. And he has said, don't go here. Don't step over this line. And a trespass, is not, it cannot be committed accidentally. A trespass can only be committed when you walk up to that line, you see it. You know it's there, and you know you're not supposed to go any further. But you decide to anyway. You know that God's word forbids this, but you don't care in that moment. You are going to commit that sin and you're going to plow forward, even though there was no uh, property line marking off that territory as being forbidden for you. Now, what's my point? Why am I sharing this? Christ's sacrifice was so great. God is so gracious and merciful that even our trespasses or even those sins that we have committed what? deliberately, knowingly, willingly are forgiven through Christ. How, how comforted would you know, or how comforted would you be to know that God has forgiven you for those sins you committed accidentally? I'd think, well, that's nice, but that's not most of my sins. <laughs> I, need, I need forgiveness for the other, those other times when I rebelled against God in this very high-handed way, like that man picking up sticks on the Sabbath. I know that I'm not supposed to do it. I don't care. I'm going to go out there, and, and, and I'm just going to pick up these sins and I'm going to carry them around with me because this is what I want to do, and I don't care that God has said otherwise. Those are the sins that I need to be forgiven for. And in verse 14, we are told, or in verse 13, we are told that that is the case. Now look at verse 14 with me. It says, with its legal demands, this is the law, with the law's legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. This is talking about the law, or this is talking about that perfectly holy standard 
that God has set for us, the standard that we must keep if we expect to be able to get to heaven in our own effort. Now, this can sound a little confusing. Let me read it in the Amplified, which captures it well. The Amplified Bible in verse 14, it says, consisting of legal demands, i.e., the requirements found in the Mosaic law which were violated, the debt is the punishment due for the violator's sins, which were in force against us and which were hostile to us, and this certificate he has set aside and completely removed by nailing it to the cross. Now, have you ever heard before that Jesus took your sins and nailed them to the cross so that they're taken away from you forever? That's, that's a wonderful truth. It is equally true to say that Christ took the law's demands on you and nailed them to the cross so that the requirements for salvation are taken away from you forever. And this brings us to the next lesson, lesson four. Jesus is willing to free us from the law's demands. Jesus is willing to free us from the law's demands. So apart from Christ, to get to heaven, you had to keep the law perfectly. But in Christ, he takes those requirements and he nails them to the cross and he separates us from them and says, you are not going to need to keep the law perfectly to go to heaven. Now, let me explain what I mean when I say we're free from the laws. It doesn't, I'm, I'm not I'm trying to communicate license to sin. It doesn't mean that there's no longer commands for us to obey. 1 John 3, 4, 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. Every time we sin, it's because we've broken or violated God's law. What I mean is Christ has freed us not from obeying commands, but from obeying commands to be saved. Christ has freed us from having to obey perfectly to get to heaven. Now, did you know that there are two ways to get to heaven? And hear me out. I know some of you are about to label me a heretic for saying that, but just give me a moment. (laughs) There are two ways to get to heaven. And the first way is by keeping that that, uh, perfectly holy, just standard never sinning, never violating it, never disobeying any of the commands that are in the law. And then you can have the perfect righteousness that is needed to go to heaven. Now, in all of human history, there has only been one person who ever kept the law that perfectly or that obediently so that he had a perfect righteousness or had what had acquired in his own effort or obedience what was necessary to get to heaven, and that is Jesus. Now, let me ask you something. Why did, and if you never thought about this before, I, I would encourage you to understand that this is the case. Why did Jesus get to ascend to heaven? It is not because he was special, even though he's special. It's not because he's the Messiah, even though he's the Messiah. It's not even because he's the Son of God and he wanted, or the Father wanted him to be reunited with him, even though he is the Son of God and God the Father did, I'm sure, want to be you know, reunited with his Son. Jesus was able to ascend to heaven because he had the righteousness required to do so. He had been perfectly obedient and perfectly righteous. Listen to this. John 16, 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world, verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. One more time because it can sound, sound a little odd. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And you say, 
well there's two things here there's there's the holy spirit convicting the world of righteousness and then there's also christ ascending to heaven to the father and you say you know what what do these two have to do with each other this is what they have to do with each other when jesus ascended to heaven it revealed to the world the righteousness that's necessary should anyone else expect to be able to do that when jesus ascended to heaven it revealed that that is the righteousness that is required to be able to enter heaven in our own effort and that's why the holy spirit has to go into the world and convict every single person that we don't have that righteousness what we need is we need another way to be righteous and i would ask you do you have this righteousness have you been perfectly righteous have you violated god's law do you have the righteousness of christ himself if not you need to listen to the holy spirit's conviction that you cannot be good enough in your own effort to get to heaven like the son of god did now that's one way to get to heaven by keeping the law perfectly the second way to have to get to heaven is the one that we need to discuss if we can't now follow me for a moment if we can't get to heaven by keeping the law perfectly or if we can't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven by keeping the law perfectly then what do we need we need a righteousness that is separate or independent of the law if we can't keep the law good enough to get to heaven then we need a righteousness that is available independent or separate from the law go ahead and turn to romans 3 we won't turn back to colossians go and turn to romans 3. so we can see how we can have the righteousness necessary to enter heaven separate or independent from the law which we cannot keep one of the ironies associated with so many people that surround us is they view the law exactly oppositely of the reason god gave it to us god did not give us the law or the ten commandments so that we would look at them and keep them well enough to go to heaven or that we would obey the ten commandments well enough or that we would be good enough to get to heaven in our own effort instead we're given the law for the exact opposite reason romans 3 20 says so that we would recognize our sinfulness so we would see how much we need a savior now with that in mind look in verse 21 romans 3 verse 21 but now because we can't keep the law the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law so god has provided a way for us to be righteous that has nothing to do with the law because we can't keep it look at verse 22 the righteousness of god that we receive through faith in jesus christ for all who believe so we can have this righteousness by faith in christ look at verse 28 we hold that one is justified by faith apart from for the second time god wants to make it clear that this righteousness is available apart from the law because we can't keep it justified by faith apart from the works of the law now sometimes i ask questions from the pulpit and katie kind of looks at me and she says she says you probably shouldn't have asked that that was too narrow what you were looking for so i'm just gonna let you know i'm gonna ask a question and i'm being super narrow <laughs> okay i'm looking for i'm looking for two words and if you don't say these two words then you're not saying exactly what i want okay <laughs> what does justified mean what does justified mean who said it declared righteous yes justified means declared righteous god looks at sinful wretched people like me and he justifies me 
by my faith in Christ. He looks at me and sees me through the lens of his own son, Jesus Christ, and is able to say, despite all of the terrible things that Scott LaPierre has done, I declare Scott righteous because I see him through Jesus. So I am declared righteous by my faith in Christ. And how thankful I am for that because I could not be righteous in my own effort. And so God, is, God did not have to graciously provide a way for us to be righteous apart from the law, but he did because he didn't want to pour out his wrath on me. When Christ hung on that cross, he was willing to receive. He's the person who stands up in that courtroom and says, and says Scalapier is going to have to suffer eternity in hell. I will be his substitute. I will die in his place. He speaks to his father, the judge, and he says that I will receive the wrath that Scott deserves. You can pour that out on me so that he doesn't have to experience it. He will live my life. I will give him my own righteousness, the perfect life that I lived. I will allow Scott to live it. You can look at Scott and see me, see Christ himself. That's what God sees when he looks at me, cloaked in the very righteousness of his son. But I want to ask you to do something. I'm appreciating how precise I must be with my language. I I feel like that's one way I've wanted to grow as a pastor, to consider the significance of words, which often requires going over my sermon with Katie on on a Thursday night and then making changes on Friday. And this is one of those sermons where I made some changes. Go ahead and look back at the lessons with me. They say Jesus is willing, which is not how these verses were initially worded. The verses don't say Jesus has or Jesus did. I I did not say Jesus gave us victory over sin. I didn't say Jesus is our substitute or Jesus canceled our debt or Jesus freed us from the law's demands. That's what I initially wrote. Why did I not say that? Why did I change the wording? It might not be true for you. It would be foolish for me to think that that is the case for all of you in here. So Jesus is willing, but you must be willing too. How wonderful would it be if it was true of everyone in here that Jesus is that person's substitute? He has canceled their debt and he has freed every single one of us from the law's demands, but there's some of you who still sit here in your sins. Jesus is willing, but you must be willing too. You must be willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You must be willing to repent of your sins You must be willing to confess that you cannot be righteous in your own effort and then put your faith in Christ to be saved, to look to him, to look to the Savior that Jesus has provided. It is only the most foolish and proud person who thinks that they're good enough to go to heaven. But I relate to that person because I spent 20-some years of my life convinced that I would go to heaven because I was a good person. Now, you know what's interesting? This world is filled with people who think that good people go to heaven and I actually never met a bad person. (laughs) I never met one person who said, bad people go to hell, and I'm a bad person, because our pride convinces us of how good we are. If you want to be good enough to go to heaven, you have to have never sinned. Even one time, you have to have lived the life that Jesus himself lived. I mean, who but the proudest person could think something like that? So if you have been thinking that, repent. Repent, confess your sin, embrace the Savior that Jesus has provided. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, today is the day of salvation. Now, we're going to have baptisms after service, then we're going to have the introduction of some new members. Please stick around for that. 
But if I ha- and if I happen to have uh, said something, and you have any questions, if you've been sitting here listening, and you're wondering, I perhaps have been trusting in my own righteousness. John 16 says, the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict the world of righteousness, and I need to be convicted of that because I have been falsely believing that I am a righteous person when I am an unrighteous person. It would be such a privilege for me to be able to speak to you. If this, sounds, if this sounded new to you today, some of these, some of these wonderful truths, what, what a blessing it would be for me to be able to meet with you, perhaps during the week, offer some discipleship. Over these coming weeks or months, Pastor Nathan and myself, we, we would consider it a real joy to be able to spend some time with you, give you a Bible if, if you don't have one, talk you through some of these great truths and scriptures that, so that you can start growing in, in your relationship with Christ. Please, you didn't end up here today uh, randomly or arbitrarily. You think you did. You, you uh, just woke up and were stirred up to go to church, and maybe you hadn't before, but God's the one that brought you here for you to hear this, and now your accountability is unbelievably high. You cannot leave here ignorantly. Now you're trespassing. The gospel has been preached to you. You've been commanded to repent, not by me, but by God himself. He commands you to repent and turn from your sins toward Christ. Should you not do that, you are sinning deliberately. You are rejecting the sacrifice of Christ that has been offered to you today. I mean, I'll show you some verses in Hebrews 10 that are just terrifying for the person who would blaspheme the blood of Christ in that way and turn from what Jesus has done. I mean, what a a horrible thing for someone to know that Jesus died on a cross and was willing to take the punishment their sins deserve and then to turn from that. I cannot literally imagine something worse than that. And so please, if you've been all convicted, give me the opportunity to speak with you and pray with you. Father, we thank you so much for what your son has done, and we thank you for his resurrection from the dead.